0: tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with one of Canada's largest self-made real estate moguls, Bob Dylan. He is the founder and CEO of Main Street Equity Corp. Bob is the definition of purpose-driven hard work. He started building his career after flipping a couple houses in Calgary. This was in the aftermath of record inflation and a disastrous national energy policy which plagued Canada through the late 80s and early 90s. Today, 23 years later, Main Street has accumulated over 17,000 rental units, and as of Q1 2023, their assets were valued at close to $3 billion. Our discussion touches on how he's built Main Street as a TSX-listed company and how it compares to competing REITs on the market. We talk about the culture and potential of Calgary, the city he calls home, and we also touch on his personal life, including his philosophies and meditation practice. Bob is a fascinating individual, and I know you'll gain a lot from this conversation. And please note that the information contained in this interview is not financial advice. It's meant for entertainment purposes. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained in this interview. I recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of an accredited investment advisor. And before we get started, I am happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again for the team at Olympia Trust Company. I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on to the show. Bob, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Corey.
0: Yes, I'm very much looking forward to our interview. You were referred to me, and and I've known the work you've been doing for years. So I'm thrilled that we're going to be speaking here. What I'd like to do is start off with a background on yourself, and the really the first question is: is who is Bob Dylan and who is Main Street Equity?
1: Corey, this is you give me too much credit. I'm a first generation immigrant. I was born in Japan. My father was born in Hong Kong. My great grandfather died in Canada in 1908. I know it sounds bizarre, but my roots from both sides of my family come from Sikh origin, from the state of Punjab and India. And although we've left many generations ago, but we've maintained strong ties with our cultural roots. came here, my parents were in Liberia, West Africa, when the Civil War broke out. And we came as economic refugees, lost everything, and we came to Western Canada. My parents were in their brilliance migrated to Calgary, this other writing on the wall, which had less of a glass ceiling, more opportunity, oil, gas, but more importantly, culture, yes, we can attitude, where an entrepreneur could create something and also cost a living and taxes and everything. So it was a right choice where I built my career. My career started out as right through University, college, my MBA class, my MBA degree started out as a real estate entrepreneur. So in the old days, they used to call them real estate flippers, but now we call Mm. them real estate entrepreneurs. And Alberta was going through, Calgary was going through a little bit of um, readjustment at that time, oil prices, national energy plan, aftermath of a lot of people leaving. And there was a lot of foreclosures. And there was a lot less buyers of real estate. And I took my non-unexistent skill set and did a deep dive on fixed two houses when I was in my early 20s or 19. I don't even remember when. And we fixed these two houses, which were boarded up, which were owned by a bank, distressed sale, fixed them up, resold them, and made like $18,000 when I was in my in my 19 or early 20s, and it was all the money in the world. And ever since then, I've been doubling down on real estate in Western Canada, and now we have close to $3 billion worth of assets and one of the best-performing companies on Toronto Stock Exchange. And... Maintained a double-digit return for 21 years, which is put in the front page of our annual reports right in the front. Here it is. Disciplined growth, 23 years. We'll give yeah. you a copy. We put a performance in the front. So what's our model and what gave us this double-digit return is different from other real estate companies, which are REITs. We are an ad value reposition creator of value rather than a financial engineer. So we only buy assets that we can add value, and add value translates to increasing the top-line revenue, implementing a business model. So what is a business model and what is a tactic? So zip through it. I know we want to talk about things rather than business model, but I'll just give you Western Canada, add value, mid-market. Western Canada, the site of the Great Lakes, Winnipeg Beachhead, add value. If we cannot increase the top line revenue by 25%, that means repositioning the assets to Main Street through Main Street value chain um, and creating a certain boutique spec. Implementing our systems, we increase the revenue by 25% on a fixed cost business, flows through the bottom line. Mid market is 80% of the apartment buildings in Canada are smaller in size, which are like 40 to 70 units. 40 to less than 100 units, 70 units at an average. So, institutional capital or the REITs are kind of focused on the bigger buildings at the 20%, the larger size, and we are focused on the 80% of the market. And then we are focused on Western Canada, and then we focus on add value. So, we have less institutional competition, and so, we would have better opportunities to buy more accretive assets
0: yeah well i mean as as you go, the list just builds right in my head of questions i want to ask and but I think that well, I have a fascination with real estate, and I really like the the model as you've explained it and and I have done my research on Main Street before before we even came here and I see your signs everywhere so I, let's dive in a bit in there but what about you as an entrepreneur? what do you think was the or what has been that that motivation your, you know you turned your first house and made eighteen grand post-national energy crisis, and been able to double down on this all this time. What's been the motivation for you as an entrepreneur?
1: Well, us immigrants have a different mindset. We've we've come here to create value to ourselves and the society we live in. And Mm. don't forget Calgary during that time. Basically, there was two industries. There was oil and gas, and there was real estate. Right. So if you're not an engineer or you don't have – the skill sets or the aptitude or understanding of oil and gas or passion for it what do you do? you get in, you become an entrepreneur you get into retail or service industry and I chose real estate and don't forget that generation real estate was the gods of entrepreneurs. You had the Reichman's Donald Trump before he became mm, a politician and the right, real estate yeah. was it and I, I grew up as a kid saying I want to be a real estate tycoon one day and you know real estate is now you've heard this a million times is real and Mm -hmm. i felt instead of and capital markets wasn't as big when i was growing up like everybody's day trading i guess technology made all these guys day traders and wealth management is a big buzzword right now but you are not in control of creating wealth to the market the market is in control of creating your wealth Right, the markets go, markets down. You could be the best stock picker. You could do your CFA and do lots of analysis you want. But million things go wrong, and interest rates go up, oil prices drop, global recession, Ukraine war, and the market or bank goes broke in Silicon Valley, and the markets drop. But in real estate, if you are in the add value real estate business, you are in control of your destiny to a certain extent. Real estate interest rates do go up, and million things can go wrong. But still, to a more of an extent, I'm in control of my destiny.
0: Hmm. You know what's interesting, too, about real estate in the world of multifamilies is that risk is distributed among every door you have, as far as I see it. And, and timeframes are a lot longer, if I'm not mistaken. You know, you're not looking at something as a quarterly trade or looking to hit invest for quarterly earnings. When you're building a real estate portfolio, you're thinking long term. Uh, multi, even multi-generational, potentially, but very interesting to see how you came into this. And, and I love the throwback to like Donald Trump as an example, when you know as a as a tycoon there. And, but what I see is you've actually built something very enduring and with a lot of integrity. A question this actually leads into is: you've been awarded tons of awards, and one of them, which is just something that was awarded to my great aunt as well, is the the Order of Canada. Wendy McDonald was her name but you're a recipient of this as well. What does that mean to you?
1: Oh, for an immigrant? Can the Order of Canada? It was the greatest pleasure, I think, not only for me, my family, but my community. I was was showered with many texts, emails, phone calls. You made us proud. And sometimes you don't do things to get awards. You do things because the right thing to do is to give back to society and main street and ourselves and our management team gave back to all the different groups of refugees or distressed people due to different circumstances like slave lake uh, fires or fork mac fires Syrian refugees Afghan refugees Ukrainian right now as we speak so we've always had i think it's very important not only charitable organizations should give back to society but corporate canada should And so we've always given back to what's given us so much is the Canadian business ecosystem. And we wanted to give back. And so we got recognized for, I got recognized for all the philanthropic work and given back to society. And I was awarded the Order of Canada. I am you know, pleased, proud Canadian. Love it. I love Canada. I love Alberta. I love Calgary. And I love this award.
0: Yeah. It is a very... Select awards. So, congratulations again. I mean, it's uh, it's huge. So, yeah, very interesting. I'm curious about when you started Main Street Equities. It wasn't long before you took the company public, and have been public ever since. And, and I just want to note something. Cindy in our pre-call showed me an incredible graph of your tracking against some of the biggest names in the world, including Amazon, World Bank of Canada, of which you've beat them all out by returns, if I'm not mistaken. And so why did you choose to go public?
1: It started out with all the wrong reasons. Okay, I was a real estate entrepreneur for many years and realizing that real estate is a capital intensive business. How do you raise capital and came up with an idea to go public. And the day I went public, the real estate index crash the Asian bubble collapse, the tech bubble collapse a year later, a new phenomena came on the market because we were a corporation. Corporation is structured a lot different than the REITs. And the REITs mm-hmm. were new players on the field, which was financial engineers who had endless capital. So mm-hmm. before I get into that, let's talk about the history of real estate. Real estate was in the hands of individuals, family offices, rich guys, and some. Small funds, but generally speaking, speaking it was individuals who controlled real estate. And individual and family offices, they were shrewd, they were tough negotiator. Then the switch happened. Switch was institutional capital. Institutional capital were there to aggregate real estate, not necessarily make the best deal. And then they had endless capital. They continued to keep raising capital through institutional money or the markets. And they raised a lot of capital and they bought a lot of real estate and the prices kept going up. And then the interest rates dropped. And, it, and so I was caught up in this, this phenomena where the transition was I become a REIT or I sell out to a REIT or I fight the system and I said, listen, as from an investor's perspective, you have so many companies to invest from. If if you're a dividend recipient or you have one company who's going to continue to add value, who has a business model and who's going to create double digit return for your investors year after year and compound it. So we have... uh, 40 companies to choose from, I don't know what the exact number it reach, Well, there's one corporation you can choose from. That is Main Street. So finally, after years of success, we gain some traction and people are saying, yes, they do what they say and their business model really works.
0: Hmm. Take me back. I mean, the, the decision to, to go public, the, the Asian crash, there's, it sounded like there's a list of things that happened early stages. Were there any pivotal moments there? You mentioned, should I be just bought out by a REIT? You know, these would have been decisions that you would have had to make, really tough decisions. Which ones have stuck with you?
1: Well, it's, first of all, I started very, very young, and my journey has been peaks and valleys, and it's a lot of bumps along the way. And there was a lot of opportunity during this journey where I could have monetized my hard work mm. and got a big check and sailed off to Belize and never come back. I had that opportunity, but it was self-realization when this opportunities came for people to buy our portfolio, an operating platform, a technology, a supply chain, logistic, everything we have created. What came to me at that point was it takes a while for you to understand yourself. The journey sometimes is within yourself as to understanding you. And a lot of people do not spend a lot of time understanding yourself. Mm. And opportunities like that, when monetization happens, you have the opportunity to understand yourself. And understanding myself, now, this is the answer to a long-winded question. It wasn't about the money. It was about the journey. It was about the business mm. model. It's about proving a point that, hey, this is a neglected sector, mid-market, ad value, Western Canada, which I'm perfecting and improving the life of middle class Canadian and creating double digit return on the biggest discussion on every media platform is going to be in next during next election is affordable housing. And mm-hmm. I'm in the center of it. So which I've been talking about since day one. What's unique about our sector multifamily, you touched on this multiple tenants and and I know you're referring to risk management on the building, but the Biggest driver, the secret sauce of our business, other than our management team, is the whole universe trades below replacement cost. So what that mm-hmm. means, Corey, is if you build a brand new building, and I know you live in Vernon, if you build a building in Vernon or anywhere else in Canada, it's going to cost somewhere between three hundred dollars to $450,000 per door. You can buy buildings, like I just bought a building in Nelson, BC, for little over $100,000 per door. Now, why does it trade for $100,000 a door? Because the economic fundamentals make it worth $100,000 a door. But the byproduct of this economic fundamentals, till the rents go up considerably, you're not going to economically justify new supply. Right. So, in from Prince Edward Island to Victoria, there is only 2.2 million purpose-built apartments mm-hmm. with CMHC vacancy rates saying 1.7%. So take even uh, 5% or 2 million apartments is, is 100,000 vacant units and a population growth is going to be in the next three years, a couple of million people. I don't know what the exact number is. Nobody knows between foreign students, immigration, PR, refugees, who knows what the real numbers? but I know it's going to be more than half a million new residents. Not everybody's going to be a renter, and there's alternative ways of renting, you know, basement suites and illegal suites and rooming houses and condos that uh, people rent out. I get that, but the supply-demand imbalance is so big. And if you go back Mm -hmm. to my press releases from day one, 20 years ago, the secret sauce of the multifamily, differing from hotels and warehouses and commercial buildings, it trades below replacement cost. When you, yeah. as an investor, me as in the management of Main Street is investing in buildings, as, a, as an investor in the stock, or anybody else investing in multifamily real estate, what are the, what are the things you're looking for? Number one is risk management. What's the risk of my business or my investment? And the risk is lot less when you trade low replacement costs and there's a supply demand imbalance and it's a necessity. So you know it's 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 not a you're not investing in some technology which is gonna be obsolete or you're investing in a mine that or, or you're drilling for oil and you hit a dry hole. It's it's something since the Creation of humanity through the caves of
0: wherever. <laughs> From the first Africa. landlord of caves. Yeah.
1: yeah. I wonder if there were landlords who were renting caves out. There probably was. Yes.
0: <laughs> Perhaps. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Let's go back to early days and somebody could offer you a check. And you mentioned that you had to get to know yourself. And I think that this, I'll be honest and, and a bit vulnerable here. I'm going through that right now in my life, getting to know myself, where I'm at with my business. What do I want to do? And so how was that for you? And what kind of questions did you ask yourself? And how did you ultimately come to your conclusion? And it probably, I would imagine, has happened a number of times throughout your career.
1: So like I said, you get to know yourself when you say no. It's not that you go through... You know, you sit in a room and you meditate, which, by the way, I do every day. You meditate and the answers come from the universe. No, I should not take this check and monetize and sail off or restart again or buy a jet or a Ferrari or whatever your heart desires. You say no first and then you reflect backwards and say, why did I say no? It doesn't work for everybody the same way, but that's my journey. When I said no numerous times, so investment bankers came. He says, are you interested in selling? And I say no every time. And why is that? Because I love what I do. It's not work. It's not about creating wealth. It's like creating a business, a platform, a management team, providing better quality of life of middle-class Canadian, having the best product in my segment. Which is an average $1, thousand eleven hundred dollar rents, uh, creating a brand where we can go to every Western Canadian city and then say, Yeah, you know what, I just just like you go to Starbucks or Tim Hortons, you say, Hey, I want to rent a suite. Let's see if Main Street has any buildings in Nelson, BC or Vernon, or Surrey, Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Kamloops, Penticton, Prince George, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Regina, Winnipeg, Cochrane, Fort Saskatchewan, and the list goes on.
0: What I'm hearing there was sticking to what you love and, and in doing so is just by saying, no, like this, is, this is what I'm focused on and this is where the long-term vision and, and not, not deviating from that for kind of a quick fix or a quick check.
1: If you get into business, that's just my view. If you get into business just to make money, the chances are you won't make money. Nah. If you get into business or an enterprise to create something, or a passion, or something you enjoy, I think you'll make money. But what I don't agree on, and I get a little bit of controversy for your podcast, is these guys are saying balance of life, and you got to be happy. Do you say that to a gold medalist who gets up at 4 in the morning, and he trains, and he watches his diet, and he's got these mentors? No, don't work so hard. If you enjoy sprint, doing the 100-meter sprint, no, you got to kill yourself. Yeah. you got to be a savage. you got to go out there and work 80 hours a week. Balance doesn't exist in your vocabulary. So it makes my skin crawl when it tells it, well, you'd be a happy soldier in the world of this entrepreneurial ecosystem if you balance your life. That's a recipe for failure.
0: Hmm. I hear what you're saying there in the sense that this work-life balance thing is, is not, it's not applicable to the world of, of building billion-dollar successes. It doesn't happen that way. You need to go in there, and I think the analogy there of a gold medal athlete is, is really on point because that's something, you know, we're 120-some interviews in here and speaking with some really remarkable entrepreneurs, and I've always gotten this sense of just a, you and they play at such a different level to achieve that level of success, and you're not going to do that saying, I only work nine to five.
1: Right. I only train on Thursdays. Yeah. You're not getting the gold medal.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, it's, yeah, huge point there. I want to shift gears a bit. You and I have, in our pre-call, you know, came to realize that we both have a huge affection for Calgary, a love for that city. It's where you started. It's where I spent a very proud part of my career. Tell me more about Calgary, because you mentioned it of being the Austin of the north. You know, and, and also, let's talk inner city and what inner cities mean to, to cities.
1: The us start off, You've asked multiple questions. What's unique about Calgary? What's unique about Calgary? It has a less of a glass ceiling. Now, why is that? Glass ceilings generally happens when there's multi-generational of wealth, like Toronto, certain segments of Vancouver, Montreal, etc. When the society is not run by entrepreneurs, it's society is run by old money. That's where guys like you and me will never get in. We'll never get an opportunity. You got to be lucky, or or you got to be a real gold medalist to achieve success. Calgary was going through combination of a lot of things. It was it was built by Americans because the oil business Americans came to. Calgary mm. when oil was discovered. So it was in a really American city. That's one reason. Second is we had to work in the oil patch. We had the rural areas of farmers from Saskatchewan and Alberta, and also rural Alberta. They had a great work ethic, open work ethic. It created a unique hybrid culture of, yes, we can, free enterprise, low taxes, so less of a socialist give me attitude, instead of yes, I can attitude. Then the oil business, the real pioneers in the oil business were risk takers. Mm. Right? You're, you raise a bunch of money. I'm not talking about the big six oil guys. I'm mm. talking about the real guys who created the oil industries. They raised a little bit of money and drilled a hole, a dry hole. What yep. do you do? Give up? You raise some more money, do another one. and You had a home run once in a while. So that is risk element which a kid grows up in Calgary says i want to be an entrepreneur i bet you a kid grows up in toronto he says i want to work for this, one of the top six banks
0: i want to be a banker yeah <laughs> i want
1: to be a banker so you're slicing margins and when you're an entrepreneur you get big margins so calgary's very unique unique that way i hope it never changes and the population yeah. grew came from all over and who comes to calgary guys who want to make something of themselves you're not looking mm-hmm. for a job at a bank here. You come here to become an entrepreneur and you roll up your sleeves and make something. Now, let's talk about real estate in this context. So, real estate, when the city is growing, you got an opportunity where I see all these mega house builders and developers. They're all first generation. They came here with no money and they built big housing companies and land development companies. Main Street was one of them. And my other friendly peer, who's also big multifamily, I don't want to mention the company name, multifamily company, also based out of Calgary. Isn't that mm. a coincidence? Massive real estate company, all self-made. Mm. There's got to be a coincidence. This should be a case study in all the business schools in Canada. Why? Per capita, we have more entrepreneurs in every sector. Every sector, yep. not only real estate. Then let's talk about inner city. Now, you know, I want to put a plug in on Main Street. Main Street made a bet on all inner city locations. I know we're going to talk about Calgary, but our product is boutique living inner city millennials. Why? Simple. 44% of the population is millennials and is C cohort. We did this data mining for years, watching the trend, trend line of who are the renters. Immigrants, domestic students, foreign students, millennials. So where do they want to live? Inner city, transit, next to the entertainment district. So we went out there and created inner city hubs, all our cities. So I'll show you a map of Calgary. That's an inner city portfolio, all the purple dots. Right. Now, let me tell you one I'm really proud of is before the entertainment district merged in Edmonton, we went out there and created We bought everything in the future ICE district of Edmonton. And we bought this before the ICE district. And then LRT lines came and the arena happened and the museums, hotels, and restaurants and bars. Again, catering to the millennials. Now, going back to Calgary inner city. Calgary inner city is, I'm willing to make a bet, is the best inner city in North America. Now, if you just, you know, pretend you're a drone. Uh, and you're flying over the inner city of Calgary, and you got Bridgeland, Sunnyside, the river, you come up Eau Claire, you come up First Street, you got the downtown core, you got the First Street, you got First Street Entertainment District, 17th Avenue, you got the Mission, and then you merge into Marta Loop, and Elbow Park, and Mount Royal, and all that. Where do you get this perfect? Oh, East Village, I keep forgetting about East Village. All these pockets are developing into this fabulous. Nice summer day you got to open patios and you can walk for miles and miles of restaurants and young people and the people running around on bird scooters. I have to put a plug in on bird scooters because we have a co branding agreement, and they park in all our buildings, and there's a app you want to rent a bird, go to a main street building, anyway go back to inner city just want
0: to, I want to touch on this. Somebody argued with me over the the use of these scooters, birds, neurons, whatever they have in different cities. And I said, no, they are—they are so good for our cities because when we have accessible transportation, it is far easier for us to to fan out and enjoy all of the elements of a great city, being an inner city, versus just being stuck and saying, "Oh well, there's no parking." I love the idea of accessible, quick transportation, and that's what these these scooters have brought. And so, I think it's neat that you were able to do a deal with them.
1: And please, we have. Fabulous video clips on every apartment, inner city apartment not every, but a lot of them have bird scooters parked in the front and we have an app, co-branding app with bird scooters. We have a relationship that goes back from the inception. Now go back to the inner city. So we made a bet on inner city and all these cities in Western Canada and we cater to the millennials and the lifestyle and we designed the suites, smart apartments, catering to their needs. The challenge of Calgary inner city is: we had seven years of the recession, Mm. slow migration numbers, overbuilt capacity, low oil prices, pipeline fiasco, negative cloud over Calgary, which slowed our growth in the Ice District and inner city Calgary. Now we are full throttle again, and if this continues in next three to five years, I guarantee. We would be the inner city, the best inner city in the world. We're already rated by different organizations as the third best livable city globally. But now I'm going a step further, peeling the onion. Why we are the best city is because our inner city is fantastic.
0: Amazing. It's neat to see. Now, actually, I do want to touch on Vernon because the Vernon market and investing in BC is an interesting one. But... When we move from Calgary, I look back now and see what an incredible city it is. And it's, it's almost, you take it for granted for being there. So I do want to put a plug in for Calgary as a city. Let's talk about investing in, in British Columbia. I think it's very different than Alberta. One point being that you're investing in a, a province that has rent controls in place. And what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on uh, Vernon as a, as a market as well?
1: Vernon's a great market, but I want to uh, finish off on uh, Calgary for one second. Okay. You made an earlier comment that we're going to be the Austin, Texas of the north. As soon as Calgary gets emphasis, all these tech companies moving in to Alberta because Alberta is the best affordable alternative in North America. So that's why the companies, low taxes, reasonable cost of living, no GST – Everybody wants to be in Alberta. So if we continue this momentum of tech and diversifying our economy, we are going to be not Austin, Texas of the north. We are going to be the Austin, Texas of North America. I just want Mm. to finish that off. Amazing. Okay. (laughs) Now, why BC cities? First of all, we have become market leaders in inner city in Edmonton, Calgary, and we need to diversify. We need to continue to implement a business model everywhere. And we saw an opportunity in uh, B.C. One of the uniqueness about B.C. market, and we'll get back to rent controls in a second, is lack of supply. Mm. Disproportionate lack of supply for the population growth. For example, we are market leaders in New West. We are in New West, but market leaders in Surrey, which is adjoining suburb, market leaders in Abbotsford, market leaders in Chilovac. We grew into Kamloops, Vernon, Penticton. Vancouver Island, and Prince George. So what are the key metrics we are looking for other than diversification, supply-demand imbalance? We are looking at university towns. For example, Kamloops has got 4,400 apartment units, total supply. And Thompson River University has a total student population of 14,000. And out of the 14,000, there's 4,000 foreign students. International students. So the total supply is 4,400, and just student population is 14,000. And there's colleges and other drivers of the economy. I'm just talking about one line item that makes Kamloops such a great market. And that's very similar to every city in BC. Supply, demand, imbalance. balance. There's lots of reasons. You got the mountains, you got the rivers, you got agricultural reserve, you got these anomalies that only exist in BC, where supply is much more difficult to bring on. And Mm. I see the trend line in the next decade as the aging demographics. There's going to be more and more people saying, okay, you know, I don't want to buy a house in Phoenix. I want to buy a house in Scottsdale or Palm Springs. And not everybody can afford a house in Scottsdale and healthcare issues and other issues we don't want to talk about. I want to have a condo for the winters in Vernon. It's milder temperature, beautiful country, organic farms, lifestyle choices, and healthcare. So I, you know, I think BC secondary markets where we are really focused on are very diverse. Like they are not tourism only or retirement only. That tech base. They are got the micro industries from wineries to a million other things. Regional centers. People have a misconception when. They talk about Vernon, and that's why we are breaking into all these markets. And we've yeah. got a footprint in like six BC markets, and we're expanding. For example, we haven't even closed on it yet. We just bought our first building in Nelson, BC. Has anybody been to Nelson, BC? It is got it is it is like the architectural heritage, architectural marvel of Canada. You know, really? you got the lakes, you got the cliffs, you got the ski hills, you've got Draft Dodgers who came there. You got the artist community. Like, it is. They're like everybody. Now, it's a tough place to get to. But once you get there, you don't want to leave, leave that place. Yes. So you got all these billion-dollar homes up in the hill. You've got a beautiful downtown, a real downtown. Like, mm. Vernon, a beautiful city, but doesn't have a real downtown. I and agree the with Downtown you. is all heritage buildings. And I wouldn't be surprised all these small tech companies, you know, 405. Members are all going to relocate in secondary markets, and Nelson being one of them.
0: Hmm, Fascinating. You're not the only fish in the sea. You've definitely become one of the larger. But how do you negotiate on these deals? How do you make the economics work, especially in a rent-controlled market? What does that? What does that look like for you?
1: I'm going to give you a famous line by a housing minister in Vietnam. Rent control did more damage in Saigon than the B-52 bombers. Wow. Yeah, You can Google that line. Bottom line is rent control limits supply. Mm -hmm. Because who's going to build apartments in a rent control environment? So that goes back to history. You know, look at Manhattan, look at price controls in any economic field is contracts supply. So, Then what BC has is mountains, rivers, agricultural reserve. 20% of lower mainland is agricultural reserve, 20%. That is the size of the state of Israel, which has 9 million Mm. people, okay? So we create these, We that's physical boundaries and artificial boundaries. So when the churn happens on these buildings in BC markets, rents go up substantially, just like Manhattan. So you can have these old rent controlled building and or Paris and you move out for whatever reason, the rent's double. Right. And then there's also a segment of where you can upgrade. a lot of these buildings need tender loving care and you fix the buildings up and you can move up the rents and so forth. But rent control for long term has benefited the landlords. And the short if you're a short term player, BC's not your market. Right. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Regina, Saskatoon's your market. You know, you go out there and fix the place up, and you increase the rents. Now, we only also buy distressed assets, Corey. So the, what that means is, the building's gotta need tender loving care, and the rents are below market. The landlord's absentee; he doesn't care. He wants to go out. We are buyers of distressed real estate. So a lot of the land, a lot of the community tenants uh, are happy that we buy and reposition and re-rent the building with proper tenants and bring the crime rate down to zero through security and cameras, renovate the building, re-tenant the building with better qualities. People actually love us for doing what we do and the neighborhood and the city and so forth. There is elements that they don't understand us in the beginning. And there's an uproar when we go into a new community, but that usually dies down after they see our track record and they see a performance of what we do to the asset, which is spending money. Yes, a previous, investing in the property. Previous and landlord in- hasn't done yet. Yeah, in invest in the property, which means investing in the community, which means investing in better quality of life for middle-class Canadians.
0: How do you approach these negotiations? Is it a matter of, are these markets so saturated with other investors looking to come in that you have to differentiate or... Is there for these distressed assets, just easy conversations that be had that just take some time? How do you approach negotiations?
1: There's many reasons why, but let's talk about the pillars of Main Street first, and that it'll make sense why the vendors and the brokers and the distressed sellers would prefer to deal with us. One is our ability to close cash on distressed asset quickly. Why that's important is, my competition, which are usually fragmented mom and pops, would need cash, need subject to financing. And that's a long due diligence time and subject to financing when interest rates are going up and so forth. So that's why. Number two is we've got internalized property management platforms. So we have, we have the economies of scale to operate more effectively than our competitors, which are fragmented mom and pop. Then we get the supply chain logistics from Asia where all the kitchen cabinets and Uh, things come in these containers. And so our cost of renovation is a lot lower. And then we do hundreds of millions of dollars worth of debt every year. So we have a competitive advantage on the pricing of the debt. Combination of all these four pillars, the words out that we are probably, maybe we won't pay the full retail price, but we are usually the first call or the last call. Why we are the first call? Somebody needs to take this off their books because we buy cash and they know we are professionals. We know what we're doing. And we got 17,000 units as of today, Corey, and soon to be 20,000 units as time goes on at our aggressive acquisition strategy we have. The word's out and the brokers want somebody who wants to close. We are frequent buyers. And so we, we are the first call because of that.
0: Yeah, of course. You kind of created that scale. With where you're at now, Seventeen thousand units, nearly right. three billion in, in assets. You personally being the largest shareholder, as I understand. What keeps you up at night? Politics. Okay.
1: I'm afraid the next elections are going to be fought on affordable housing. So we, um, without really understanding what causes affordable housing, is is a policies that. Different levels of government may have done. I'm not blaming any political party or any level of government, municipal, federal, provincial. Nobody anticipated a shortage of affordable housing two decades ago. So mm. now, that now we are in this situation, like kind of oil prices too, right? No reinvestment in oil companies. And now the oil companies are saying oil's a hundred bucks. You don't want us to reinvest and grow the oil production while the demand keeps rising. You dividend your money out. And so no thought process going into affordable housing two decades ago and now we have a supply demand imbalance in affordable housing. In politics sometimes instead of taking a long perspective view, how do we create supply, which is going to be the backbone of a Canadian economy, if you don't have affordable housing, so we're gonna have problems. So my view is if wrong policies may come up, like stricter landlord tenancy act it's already proven that stricter landlord tenancy act is is going to create less supply taxation eliminating capital gains tax that's going to create less of a supply all these things that may be temporary measures and there never is temporary measures that becomes a long-term Supply constraint and long term supply constraint, like Manhattan and other parts of San Francisco and whatnot, creates lack of supply and which affects the GDP, it affects students, foreign students, and immigration. And 73% of all Canadians make less than $50,000 a year. Hmm. So the same people we want to help, we hurt by putting the wrong policies. To answer your question, What keeps me up at night is the wrong policy that may constrain supply of Canadian housing. I'm not saying that's happening, but that's what keeps me up at night.
0: Yes. How do we change this mindset? And my politics, to be open, are definitely fiscally conservative and, and socially liberal. When it comes to my conservative thinking, it's, it's, we need to empower everyone to go out there and be entrepreneurial, even if they're working within an organization, take control of yourself, take control of your life. You know, it's my view, it's upon the individual to go out there and find purpose and build value for everyone around them. But I feel that there's a degree of, I think that that's slipping on a national, even a global level. How do we change that? And how do, we, how, do we, how do we inspire more people to be like you?
1: Corey, that's a really interesting question. What are you asking me is there's, there's been a shift in the energy of people where instead of saying, I'm going to take care of myself, the government's going to take care of me. That's what you're saying. That's your question. The shift has happened. If I'm unemployed, I'm going to create something. And I'm, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to work for less money. And now the shift is you take care of me. How did that shift happen? Right? What caused that shift? Is that your question?
0: That's that's partially how do, how has it happened and how do we start to move it the other direction?
1: When the oil prices dropped, historically people came to Calgary to work, and the jobs ran out, and the economy slowed down, oil prices dropped. I'm talking about the 60s, 70s, 80s, people left. This time they didn't. Mm. This time I didn't come to Calgary to work. Or it's evolved to I love Calgary, and Calgary is a place I want to live and I'm going to create my employment. So the oil guys, so oil executives who, you know, those big layoff and packages that happened, they all became entrepreneurs. They all stayed. Mm -hmm. that's a case study that we need to blast out to the universe through your podcast. And, Corey, we say, hey, we created our own destiny. And I know what you're saying. First, it comes from the mindset. It's here and here. And if we don't believe, if we are saying and we want a handout, you know what happens to societies with handout. You know what happened to Europe. You know what happens to... The East Bloc, it's, it's a temporary measure. It's not sustainable. And you're right. We need to change the narrative within ourselves.
0: I can't believe, Bob, we're already almost near an hour. And I wish I could continue speaking with you. But I do want to ask a couple more questions before we wrap up. What books do you read? What's been most influential for, for you as a person and your career?
1: Yeah, I, I only read spiritual books. I only okay. read health books, spiritual, self help, but the self help books have become kind of repetitious. It's like it mm. seems like one universe has given somebody the wisdom, and they've taken slice and diced out of it, and it's the same thing over and over again. Like believing in yourself and hard work and all that. We know all that, but so I'm really focused on spirituality, Zen, meditation, and yoga. But what's really interesting? To me, is a science of meditation, not the spiritual yeah. crystal rubbing hocus pocus. So the science is now saying meditation is scientifically helps you live a better life. Bottom line is, a mm-hmm. body's a temple, and we are a Ferrari, and we just need more mechanics to fine tune this Ferrari when we're going down at two hundred miles an hour. And young people ask me; I'm still young, I like to think. But young people ask me, they said define meditation i said meditation for me is like playing baseball and somebody throwing a fast pitch but the ball's coming at slow motion so you can mm. position yourself and you can hit it and it's the same as your podcast is processing your question and dealing with stress dealing with mathematical spreadsheets dealing with case studies dealing with everything is the power is within you and how you process the cpu is meditation. So I read a lot of books about it. I'm fascinated. I'm not blind. I'm not, I, don't, I don't have 100% faith in following something blindly. I question it, and I do a deep dive. And I do do a lot of data mining and a lot of research on real estate. So I read every night. So my message to the universe out there is half an hour reading a day is all you need, and you'll kill it.
0: Mm. Okay. Meditation is, has been something that's helped me a lot as well. And it's difficult to maintain a constant practice. But I've found in tough times when I go back to start meditating, the world becomes clearer. And Clear. and the noise just quiets down. But it it's, it's quite remarkable the amount of work it takes to just focus and to start to get rid of the the constant thoughts that are in the head. So very interesting to hear you say that. And it reminds me of one other person saying, somebody saying, For people who say, I don't have time to meditate, that is the exact person who needs to take the time to meditate.
1: One mistake on meditation is everybody thinks it takes 20 minutes. Try one minute. I say, the one minute meditation, I should write a book on it. And you know that one minute will eventually evolve to 20 minutes. Just do one minute. Yes, one minute helps. I I had a sleeping disorder, Corey, where it was tough for me to sleep at night because I get Mm -hmm. all wired up, cellular phone, laptop, and stock market going up and down. My stocks drop and my stocks going up, and I'm negotiating eight deals every day. It's crazy. I I have trouble sleeping at night. So now, whenever I wired up, I can't sleep. I meditate. Boom, I go to sleep.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, perhaps it's most powerful advice in our interview now is to, to start meditating.
1: And, and the challenge is, trust me in this, oh, I don't have 20 minutes. I say you have one minute.
0: Yeah, just do it.
1: Just do yeah. it. One minute a day.
0: Aside from meditation, any advice for executives and perhaps closing advice for, for executives and, and anyone running public companies, you're now 20 some years into being a differentiated public company against the REITs who you compete against. What advice do you have for, for the CEOs and IR pros out there on building and marketing?
1: Great growth? question, Corey. When I did the ICD course, there was one interesting case study, and I want everybody to read. The most okay. successful public companies in all the exchanges of free world, Canada, U.S., Australia, U.K., New Zealand, was when somebody has a control block, a family, an individual, a fund, whatever. What has happened in the public arena is the CEOs are there as a revolving door. The board of directors are there as a revolving door. That's what this case study said. Everybody's going in and out, and there's very little time for strategy. So average tenure of a CEO and a board of directors four years. You can't build a strategy in four years and execute and see the fruits you know, uh, of your investment. You can't do it. So – so how do we, because we, we've, come, we've become a nation of instant coffee, instant fast food, instant everything, and instant return on your investment. And that's the opposite of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is a long-term thinker, and he invests in companies that banishment has a significant interest and somebody who makes long-term strategic plays. And the, and the markets are designed for you not to do that. The management's not designed, and everybody's looking for that little bump. So my advice is we need to think strategically and need to think long-term. That also goes in politics too. Politician works for the next election. A statesman works for the next generation. That's a famous line. And it's the same way a CEO's got to think. We got to think what's good in long-term, not what's good for the next quarter.
0: How do you communicate that? The market. Then
1: it is being communicated. Warren Buffett communicates it. All the shareholders on Main Street are long-term, deep discount, value-add investors. Just go into Cedar. I don't want to mention their names. Just look at them. Why would you invest? I think the podcast should be to these fund manager. Why do you invest in Main Street? They'll tell Hmm. you because it's a long-term strategic play.
0: Maybe I'll dial them up and ask. Yeah, very interesting, Bob. We're at an hour here and. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and and if you have any final thoughts that you want to share please do otherwise I've uh I've enjoyed our interview
1: well I really enjoyed your questions and diversity of your different points of view and you know one thing happened during covid is zoom and technology that you mm. can sit out of Vernon and talk to me sitting in Calgary and I'd be talking to people in Hong Kong and New York and Boston all over the world i think that's one positive thing that came out of COVID. I like my final comments of this. Canada is the greatest country in the world. It is just fantastic. Only people who complain about Canada are Canadians. We've got everything. We got everything. And now I see the positives of what's happening in a society between inclusiveness and diversity and in economic diversity and social diversity and everything. I think we are if we fine tune everything, we are that we are going to be the envy of the world, and more importantly, maybe we will be the example of what the world wants to be, not only economically rich, not only greatest lifestyle or easiest living is just that society wise we should be recognize like people talk about scandinavian countries and people talk about iceland and people talk about other places on the planet that they've they've worked out the magic formula i think canada has that naturally we have the resources the people the education the infrastructure the healthcare everything let's not screw it up that's my message to everyone let's build on what we have let's not go backwards let's go forward And I'm not making an economic policy conversation. I'm talking about society in every aspect.
0: Yes, I hear you and and I agree. We are incredibly fortunate and we can't be looking a gift horse in the mouth. So, Bob, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.